We've by no means uh, covered the, the full depths of this letter, so I encourage you uh, in your own time to spend some time reading through uh, the letter of Galatians and um, be reminded of the things that we've been hearing over the last uh, seven or eight weeks, uh, but also the new things that God will show you as you read that. And as you mentioned, uh, I didn't get through the whole passage last week because there was so much in there and I feel the same about today's passage. So that's why we, we've picked it up again halfway through chapter 5. We saw last time that we have freedom in Christ, freedom to no longer be under law. But that doesn't mean that the law itself in its totality has been abolished. We saw that the true law of God is, is eternal because it's God's own character. It's the way that he operates. It's the law of God. God placed this law on the hearts of human beings in creation. That's what makes us in the image of God. We're God's representatives. We're called to rule the earth as his children under the headship of his son. But when sin came, the law on our hearts wasn't totally erased, but it was defaced and distorted. So that while sometimes we do things that line up with the law, we've become essentially lawless in our actions. That's why the written code of the law was then given at Sinai. The written code shows us the highest standard that is required of anyone who is an image bearer of God, but to reveal how short of that we've fallen. Now Jesus has come and he's fulfilled the law. He's made that written code obsolete because now the Spirit sent by the risen Jesus, he is doing the work of rewriting that law on our hearts and moving our hearts to live by the spirit of the law, which is love, love your neighbour, love God. So, what does freedom in Christ now look like? It's not freedom from the law, it's freedom to obey the law. The written code has been made obsolete, all of the worship regulations, all of the ceremonial regulations, that's all obsolete, but the spirit of the law remains. Now, it doesn't mean that we no longer need to read the written code. We don't tear that bit out of our Bible. But instead of doing it to somehow find our righteousness, We can walk in the security of our acceptance by the Father through Christ and that law now becomes a good, moral, wise guide for us to show us what it looks like to live as God's covenant children. So Paul hasn't abolished the law. We saw that in verse 14. Instead he's saying, we can now obey the law not by our own power but by the Spirit. And then in verse 15 he uses this image of eating to 
illustrate his point. These three words, bite, devour and consume. As creatures, we are driven by our desires. Now that's how God made us. It's one thing that distinguishes us as creatures from God, our creator. To explain that, God is, uh, theologians use the word impassable. What that means is God doesn't suffer. He doesn't feel pain. And it's related to the biblical idea that he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. That's vital for us to affirm about God, not only because it's true of who he is, but because knowing that God does not change gives us certainty. It gives us confidence that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It also means we can be sure that he's going to be faithful to his promises. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's because God doesn't change that God is impassable. He cannot suffer. He can't be diminished. He can't have something taken away from him through suffering as we do. It also means that he's, he's not controlled or changed by desires or emotions. He doesn't have mood swings like we do. He isn't taken by surprise like we are. He isn't at times overcome with emotion like we are. Now that doesn't mean he's devoid of those things that we call emotions. He loves his creation. He's angry at sin. He rejoices in his children. He desires people to be saved. But for him those things are always in perfect alignment with his character, his nature. He's consistent in his love. His love never fluctuates. He never turns it on and off like we do. It's never shaped by circumstances or by changing perceptions of right and wrong. So instead of God being controlled by his emotions like we are, he exercises perfect self-control over them and he expresses them consistently just as he consistently expresses his own character. But we're creatures and while we're in his image, so we also have emotions and desires like love and joy and anger, these things, they're not an expression of our essential nature like they are with God. They're meant to be the way in which we express our dependence upon God as our creator. We're designed to look upon the good and beautiful and desirable qualities of God and his creation and they're supposed to then move us. That's what an emotion is. An emotion is something that sets you in motion. They're supposed to move us to worship, to service, to love. Not because of 
who we are but because of what God is and because we're in relationship with him. We're to be so captured by the beauty of God that our affections, our hearts are set solely on him. It says in Psalm 29.2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour or the beauty of holiness. Now our battle with sin is essentially a battle of desires, of affections. The heart of sin is idolatry and idolatry is about worship. So it's a question of which God will you set your affections on? And with your affections of loyalty and love, will will they be set upon the false gods whose nature is demonstrated in that they're made out of wood and stone and metal? Or will they be set on the true and living God whose glory is displayed in the splendour of creation, in his mighty acts of redeeming his people and in his self-revelation in his word. So worship is about desire. What do we choose to desire? But in the day-to-day practical living, we're faced with the choice of affections. Will I be controlled by the flesh so that my desires are set on self-gratification or will they be controlled by the spirit so that my desires are set on him and on loving God and my neighbour. That's why he uses this metaphor of eating. At the basic level, we eat because we get hungry and we have a desire to fill our stomach. And that's a good design that God has put in place because he created our bodies and our stomachs. So feeling hungry isn't bad in itself because it's a reminder that we are dependent creatures. We rely on God's provision in the fruitfulness of creation. It's a repeated reminder. Whenever we feel hungry, and we're told this in Deuteronomy, we feel hungry so that we remember we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was the first sin? It was expressed in the act of eating. Adam and Eve sought to have their basic needs fulfilled not by God the Creator, but by things in the creation. They grasped from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they bit, devoured, consumed it. A rebellious greedy act of self-sufficiency, proclaiming themselves to be dependent on themselves for their fulfilment as human beings. So as a result, the history of humanity has been one of biting, devouring, consuming the creation and one another in our drive, our desire to gratify our flesh. Another bit of revision from the authentic life. Last week we saw the hope of God's righteousness enables true faith and that expresses itself in love regardless of whether 
a person is physically circumcised or not. However, as sinners, we no longer walk in love, we walk in selfishness. That selfishness is an expression of the fear of judgment, which itself has then come from an arrogant attempt to replace the glory of God with our own glory. We're more enamoured with our own beauty than we are with God's beauty. The grace of God in Jesus Christ isn't just about restoring hope and faith, but it's also about restoring love. So our adoption as sons, our crying out in the spirit, Abba, Father, has love as its goal. Not merely that we know as we fully are fully known, but that we love as we are fully loved. So a person who's truly human, fully alive, is a human being who's walking in love because of their faith and their hope, reflecting the nature of God who himself is love. So whenever we sin against one another, we're expressing this desire to gratify the flesh, trying to fill ourselves up, but the reality is not that we are filled up, it is that we are consumed by one another. Now, we need to remember here that Paul here, when he talks about flesh and the spirit, he's not drawing a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. Flesh here doesn't mean the physical aspect of our humanity and spirit, the non-physical or soul aspect of our humanity. We don't become more godly by fighting our physical desires and only focusing on spiritual things. That's a Greek philosophical idea, not a biblical idea. That's an idea that's crept into the church at various times and it's produced through history things like monasticism, when men and women give up the physical pleasures of this life and they retreat into this seclusion in order to just focus on spiritual things to try and please God more. It's also led to things like mysticism and practices of meditation where we look within us to find what we say is our spiritual selves as if somehow our spirit is more pure than our body. But true spirituality doesn't look inwards because that's self-love. It looks outwards in love towards God and towards our neighbour. Biblical spirituality is intensely, incredibly practical. It's never complete without action. So here flesh is not our bodies, flesh is our sinful nature, our selfish desires, both bodily desires and spiritual desires can be sinful. And spirit here is not our spiritual side, this is the person of the Holy Spirit, big S, Spirit. And it's important for us to see that. If, if it was small s, Spirit, referring to ourselves, then walking by the Spirit would just be another way of performing self-effort. 
self-justification. It would just become another law that's imposed on us that demands that we reach certain spiritual standards and milestones. But because it's big S spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, then it's not a code of conduct, it's a relationship. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has set us free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was the written code that condemned us because we failed to measure up to its standards. The law of the spirit of life, that's the law of the spirit himself. It's the way that the spirit operates. And so it's the way that anyone in relationship with him also operates. So we see a contrast between these two laws or these two ways in 19 to 21 and then in 22 to 23. So the law of sin and death there in 19 to 21 it exposes sin and it brings condemnation and death. Or as Paul puts it here, the works of the flesh are evident. He says they're evident, which means I don't have to work my way through this list to explain each one or to show how each of these things ultimately results not in fulfilment but in being consumed. I also don't need to explain why they're offensive to God, why they incur his wrath, why they require that those who embrace them will be outside the kingdom. That's evidence. The works of the flesh are evident. Why? Because the law has made them evident. It's declared them to be sin. By grace we've been redeemed from the penalty of these things by the precious blood of Christ. But we can't depend on the law to redeem us from their power or to help us do the opposite. So we know we're saved by grace from the penalty we're also saved by grace from the power of sin. If we try to use the law to counteract this, then that would be using the works of the flesh to overcome the desires of the flesh. No, real change, real transformation requires grace applied by the Spirit. So it requires us in the language of verse 22, to partake of another fruit. Not the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is the good fruit that our desires, our affections should be set upon because when our desires are on them, then ultimately they're on the Spirit himself. So the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Firstly, we need to see that these are the character of the Spirit himself because he's God. This This is the law of God. This is the way God, Father, Son and Spirit operates. The Spirit is love. He is joyful and peaceful. He is patient and kind and good and faithful. He works with gentleness and with self-control. 
These are a summary of the law of the Spirit, the attributes of God. They're a description of the beauty of his holiness. And they're made known to us so that we'll see them and we will desire to know God because of them. But secondly, they're not only the attributes of God, but they're those aspects of his character which he also gives to us as creatures made in his image. They're what's known as his communicable attributes. So, we come to him and we feast on the fruit of the beauty of his holiness as summed up in these attributes and as we do, we find that these things also then become the fruit of our lives. They become an expression of the character that the Spirit is producing in us. So Paul says, against such things there is no law. Of course that's true, we know that. So why does he say it? And why does he say it using that kind of double negative? What he's emphasising is that the power to do these things comes not from the law, but from the Spirit. See, the, the works of the flesh in the list above them, they do have a law against them. But the, the prohibitions against those things in the law, rather than stopping people from doing them, actually empowers people to do them. That might sound contradictory, but in Romans 7 we see an example of this. Paul talks about the sin of covetousness. Before Paul heard the law, he didn't know what it was to covet and he didn't know that coveting was necessarily wrong. But then he heard the law and sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So the law confirms the sinfulness of human beings, not just by declaring our actions to be sin, but by actually exacerbating, by compounding our sin and actually causing us to sin all the more. Because when my rebellious, mischievous heart hears the commands of God's law, it doesn't want to submit to him. And so it rebels by sinning all the more, thus proving God to be right when he says, my heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. He proves that I am actually a slave to sin. I can't use the law to set myself free. So the, the power to do those works of the flesh actually come from the fact that there is a law against them. Paul is saying that's not how this law of the spirit of life works in the hearts of those who have been crucified with Christ and raised to new life. He's given us new hearts, with the inclination not to rebel, but to obey. Hearts that desire the fruit of the Spirit, not the gratification of the flesh. 
as verses 24, uh, 25 tell us, we've crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires and we now live by the Spirit. That's what enables us to run the race, to be back on the path of faith, hope and love because we take each step and as we take each step the Spirit is with us and in us. So we're called to be mindful of this as we run, to keep in step with the Spirit, to have our pace and direction in sync with him and what he's doing in the world and in our lives. That's true spirituality, keeping in step with the Spirit. So this relationship we have with the Father and the Son through the Spirit should then flow naturally into the relationships that we have with one another. The way that our love for God shapes our affections to him should flow into love and affection for one another. And we have three very practical examples given to us of how this fruit of the Spirit should be seen in our relationships. Verse 26 there is not the first application, it's actually the principle that covers them all. Let us not become conceited. Literally, the word means vain glory, wanting to give glory to something or someone that doesn't actually deserve it, namely ourselves. If we are conceited, if we want to give glory to ourselves, then what we do is we set up competition where we envy one another and provoke one another. When we say, look at me and all the good things I've done, seeking the approval and the acclaim of people, then we've set up straight away a system of one-upmanship in which we, need, we feel the need to prove ourselves to be more spiritual than others. Have you ever been in one of those conversations when someone relates an interesting experience they've had and then someone, the next person feels I have to tell an even more interesting experience that's a little bit more exciting than the one that's just been told and then it starts to go around the circle and, and you start to feel the pressure think, oh, can I think of something that I can tell that's going to be even better or more funny or more amazing than them? Maybe you've bought into it. Maybe you've described your experience in a way that's a bit exaggerated, sounds a little bit more spectacular so that you can look good. But this verse isn't just about telling stories, is it? It's about practising one-upmanship in spiritual matters, saying and doing things that are designed to make ourselves look more spiritual than others. Well, that's what legalism produces. That's what being under the law produces. But it's the principle of that the fruit of the Spirit counteracts. Instead of conceit, the Spirit produces humility expressed in things like gentleness, self-control, patience, finding joy in what God's doing in other people's lives instead of telling others about myself. The Spirit produces love for others instead of a desire to be the recipient of love from others. So let's look at these three examples to see how this is actually 
put into practice. And we'll see that in each example, the emphasis isn't so much what's actually done, but the attitude in which it's done. Firstly, when a brother or sister is caught in a sin or transgression. Now, this is something that requires a response. Jesus was very clear. We must respond when a brother or sister sins against us personally and we can see his very specific step-by-step instructions in Matthew 18 about how to do that. He was also very clear that there must be a response when someone sins in such a way that their sin has a ripple effect on others in the church. To not respond to sin when it becomes publicly known is effectively the same as endorsing sin by saying it doesn't matter but it's also refusing to love that person who's sinned because we're not helping them to repent and to receive forgiveness and restoration. But see the manner in which this response is to be carried out in a spirit of gentleness. There's one of the fruit of the spirit. With the aim, not of retribution, but of restoration. We restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That should always be the aim of church discipline because it reflects the way that God has dealt with us. He's given his judgments upon our sin not to destroy us but to save us. He hasn't passed judgment on us from a distance but he's stepped into our situation in the person of Jesus. So this spirit-led work of restoration must be as relational as God's work of restoration of us is. See how the, the warning keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted implies that I'm coming close to that person who sinned. I'm stepping into their situation. I'm moving into such a close proximity to them that I myself might be tempted by the same sin. We're to bear one another's burdens which means in this context being willing to take upon ourselves some of the natural consequences of that person's sin that they may be suffering. By doing this, we fulfil the law of Christ. How? Because in that action, in coming to that person in a spirit of gentleness with the aim of restoring them, we're presenting Christ to them, aren't we? We're reflecting what Christ has done by stepping into our situation bearing our sin's consequences in himself in order to restore us in a spirit of gentleness. Now, our actions in bearing one another's burdens aren't redemptive. We don't bear their sins in the way that Christ alone has. But by being like Christ to them, we're displaying the gospel to them. We're making sure that they see the way for them to come back isn't the way of law, it's the way of grace. See verse 3, we can't do this work of restoring a fallen brother or sister if we're thinking that we're doing it because we're better or more mature or more spiritual than them. Humility from the spirit means recognising I too am a sinner saved by grace. 
You all know that saying, apart from the grace of God, there go I. All we have is grace. We have nothing in and of ourselves and so grace is all that we should ever offer to others. Secondly, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now this is a reference to the responsibility that they had to provide for the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists who were travelling from town to town, uh, teaching and building up the churches, as well as for the pastors and the teachers who were within their churches who needed to be freed up from needing to earn a living so that they could focus on the ministry of the word. The word used here though for share is koinonio. It's from the word meaning fellowship or partnership. This means that this is more than simply paying a person to do a job. It's about participation, one with the other. The ministry of the gospel is something that the whole body of Christ, every member, is a part of. And while roles might differ from person to person, no role is less important or more important than the other. So the Spirit brings unity to the body, meaning not merely that we agree on the same ideas, but that we are working together for the sake of the kingdom. So this isn't a call just for people to provide for those whom we might call vocational gospel workers. It's also a call for the gospel workers to equip and to welcome and to include all members of the body to be a part of what God is doing in the church and the world. It's koinonia, it's sharing in all good things. Leaders and members alike are part of the church and we're all not to seek our own interests but to serve one another and Christ in the cause of the gospel. Thirdly, we should not grow weary of doing good. Again, it's not so much the doing good that's emphasised here but the way in which we are to do it, not growing weary. Now, growing weary doesn't mean that we stop doing good. If we're growing weary of doing good, it means we might still be doing good, but we're doing it in a joyless way, as if it was a burden rather than a privilege. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. As spirit-led children, we do good things not because they have moral value to earn righteousness, but because there's a beauty in doing things that reflect the beauty of God. It was the goodness of creation that led to the celebration of Sabbath rest. And in a similar way, as we live in the Sabbath rest, we have in Christ, our good works will become not tiresome but joyful. So we're to seek to find joy in all we do, whether that's serving in the community of the church or in the world around us or even in 
those things that we might consider mundane, just the ordinary, everyday things of life. The fruit of the Spirit is joy and he enables us to find joy as we simply do all that it means to be human. Finally, Paul gives us very kindly a summary in verses 11 and 12 of the two key things that he wants the Galatians and us to take from this letter. And it's highlighted by verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing you with my own hands. The normal practice at those, in those times was uh, for letters to be dictated to a scribe, someone who was professionally trained to be uh, literate, to be clear and accurate as they wrote. So a letter from someone would often be in someone else's handwriting, in the scribe's handwriting. But to verify that that letter actually came from the person that it claims to be from, the actual writer, the sender of the letter, would sign off in a few words in their own handwriting so it can be recognised as them. And that's most likely what we see here. Paul's taken the time to write in his own hand these two things, as if to say, if you remember nothing else from this letter, if you remember nothing else from these last eight weeks of sermons, remember these two things. And the first thing is a warning, what to avoid. The second is a call, what to embrace. Firstly, never forget to flee from legalism. Remember that the motives of anyone who tries to get you to earn favour or righteousness by your actions, they're not doing it out of love for you, but love for themselves. They want to make their lives easier. They want to win approval in the eyes of people by boasting that your good works are a result of my effective ministry. For the Galatians, that meant that these people would would have recorded how many people they had convinced to get circumcised. Today, the boasting might look different, but it's still the same thing. The glory is given to the minister, not to God. So, always be on your guard against legalism. Secondly, remember that there's only one legitimate direction for us to boast in Christ and the work that he's done on the cross. The Jews boasted in the cutting off of the flesh in the rite of circumcision. We should boast in that which the rite of circumcision only signified in part when Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, was cut off for us, bearing the wrath we deserve as he became a curse for us. As a result, there's been another cutting, another severing between us and the world. No longer are we under the world's slavery, the world's fear and domination. Our future is secured not in what the emptiness of cultures and principles of the world seek to achieve but in the promise of a new creation that will be brought about by Jesus at his return.
So the Jews claimed that circumcision made them truly Jews, truly Israel. But who actually are the true Israel of God? Well, it's those who walk by this rule. And what's the rule? It's the rule that says the crucified, risen Jesus alone is your righteousness, your salvation, your life. So live by faith in him. 